Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for your words. Thank you so much for the stories that each of us has to tell of the way that you have come and met us with truth in the Bible and that you have changed our direction. Lord, you've answered our questions. You've guarded us from um, mistakes. You've led us um, into your goodness and truth. Thank you, God, that we are not the people that we would have been had your word not been preserved for us. And um, we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us through it again this morning, knowing that this is no mere human book, Lord, but that this is the word of God, that it divides soul and spirit, that it cuts. And we pray that it might cut us and, uh, and bind us up. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So um, we are in our last message in Ephesians here. It seems to have gone really quickly. Um, it's been uh, a ton of fun for us who've been teaching our way through this book. I hope that um, you're feeling that you've got somewhat the overview. Certainly, I think all of us who've been uh, working our way through it, we feel just about ready to start teaching it now we've got to the end because um, it's got that complexity to it. But let's throw our diagram up on the screens here and I'm just going to give you the quick guided tour of where we've got to so far. Um, you remember in our first three chapters of the book, we saw that repeating pattern. Uh, for those of you who've been here, you'll be familiar with this vocabulary. Uh, Paul starts off by telling us what we call vertical truths. Truths about God's relationship to us and our situation in relationship to God. But Paul is not content to leave that just sitting on the bookshelf. He wants that to impact the way that we live. And so his vertical always leads to horizontal it always leads to application in my work life, in my marriage, in my parenting. Paul wants to see the gospel transform the way that I behave. And then we saw repeatedly that after that, Paul always prays because he knows that we need help to do that. And we see that in the, uh, the big picture of the book as well. So we just refresh that, Rick. Um, you can see that same pattern reflected across all six chapters now. If you look in your Bibles at chapter 4, verse 1, which we've said before is the turning point of the book, Paul calls us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. The first three chapters really are the calling. And then uh, from chapter 4 through to the middle of chapter 6, Paul describes the life, the horizontal application of all of that amazing truth. And we're going to come now to the end and we're going to see that Paul's uh, preoccupation with the fact that we need help to do this comes right back to the surface. So... Uh, I hope you can see even from that kind of how intricately built the book of Ephesians is. That's really come home to me as I've gone through this, what an artist Paul is as he puts his material together. Um, I think Rod and Westy and Greg and Mike and Matt and I, have, I'm sorry, Matt is Westy, what am I thinking of? Um, we've discovered that Ephesians is kind of, it's like a nuclear power station. It's uh, incredibly complicated and it has pipes and wires running from one end of the building to the other. And it makes it real difficult to know how to divide it up. Because every time you take a slice through Ephesians, you're left with all these kind of loose pipes with stuff gushing out of them, wondering what to do. Um, so we've done our best to try and hand that message from uh, sermon to sermon. But now, finally, we arrive at the end, and we can at least see the whole thing uh, in overview. We can see how everything connects. And um, uh, Paul does a really great job here at the end of the book of really highlighting all of those threads, those pipes and wires that have been running throughout his letter. The way that Paul has it organized then as we open up this text right at the end, uh, we're going to see a lot of those themes repeated. But also what it's going to do is it's going to kind of tee us up to step back from Ephesians and to step back even further, to step back from God's whole work in our lives and what's going on in our world and see the bird's eye perspective so that's the way that our message is going to be structured. We're going to march our way through, looking at some of these threads that are repeat through Ephesians. That will get us into the text in our hands. But then at the end, we're going to dial right back and see what it is uh, that Ephesians is telling us about the Christian worldview as a whole. Everybody cool with that? We've got our work cut out for us. So um, I hope you had a good breakfast. Okay. Right. So over the, um, the last few weeks... I guess we've been working our way through this section on the life here, haven't we? And uh, that really uh, comes into focus when we get to the first verse in our passage, when Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We all know from the structure of the book, don't we, why he's coming back to the idea of power now. 
And we should be feeling the reason why inside us, I guess. Over the last few weeks, we've heard Paul laying out this most incredibly exalted and challenging vision of living the Christian life, haven't we? We've been called to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be united. We've been called to pour out our gifts at the feet of our neighbours. We've been called to put off falsehood and put on truth. We've been called to put off laziness and put on industry. We've been called to uh, put off greed and put on thanksgiving. We've been called to recognise that our culture's free and easy attitude to idolatry and to sexual immorality is really a complete rip-off and to resist it. We've been called to encourage others to praise God, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as wives and husbands, as parents and children, as employees and employers. But the problem with all of it, I'm sure it's kind of screaming out from inside you, is that's great, but how? How can I ever live a life like that? It's just so far beyond us, isn't it? I don't doubt that it's the right way to live. I think I've seen enough in my own experience of how the alternative plays out to know that. But the problem is just that doing it is so hard. And I think Paul senses that too. It's baked into the structure of his book. And that's the reason why now, in chapter 6, he goes reaching back for a very particular piece of material on power from earlier in the book. That phrase that we have in chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, is an exact quote in the Greek from the prayer that he prayed in chapter 1, verse 19. I wonder whether you remember that. When he asked his readers, he asked that God might uh, give his readers uh, that incomparably great power, uh, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I wonder uh, whether we can really grasp what it is that Paul's got in mind there. When I was growing up, um, I was a bit of a car nut. And um, I remember pretty vividly back in England, the anticipation that surrounded uh, the release of the first Japanese supercar. I don't know whether you were ever into this whole thing, the the Honda NSX. This was Honda's attempt to go toe-to-toe with the Ferraris and the Porsches that all little European boys like me uh, dream of driving when they grow up. And... um, At the time, it was a really big deal because Honda were the world-leading constructor in Formula One motor racing. And their intention was to bring all of the -the state-of-the-art know-how that they got from the track and to bring it into a road car. But it was more than just the engineering know-how. The thing that got everybody really excited about the Honda NSX was the fact that their star Formula One driver, the Brazilian motor racing legend Ayrton Senna, had agreed to serve as the chief test driver for this car. Everyone wanted to know what it was going to be like to drive this thing that had Senna's fabled feel and track craft kind of baked right into the geometry of the way the thing was built. And you can imagine the emotions of the uh, fortunate few owners of this thing on the day that the cars were finally delivered. The same power that conquered the Monaco street circuit is under my right foot. They'd seen what Senna and Honda could do on their TV screens. And now they had a chance to find a stretch of open road and try and do the same thing themselves without burying it in the ditch. I think that's what Paul wants us to see here. Paul is very bold, isn't he? Paul wants us to know that the development work for the Christian life was carried out by Jesus Christ. And the same power by which he won the greatest victory of all time is available to us. It's enabling us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. So that's what Paul wants us to know. When we feel that overwhelming impossibility of becoming what we are, that great call of the middle part of Ephesians, he wants us to know that there's an equally overwhelming power available to help us do that. The same power that spoke life into the dead body of Jesus. And the way that we get hold of it is prayer, isn't it? That's what Paul's model consistently through the book. He goes vertical, horizontal, and he prays for power vertical, horizontal, and he prays for power. That's exactly what's going on now in the big picture of Ephesians. The next big connection that uh, Paul makes to the earlier parts of the book um, is in the very next verse. He says, put on the full armour of God. As we've gone through the second half of Ephesians, we've seen Paul developing this alternating pattern, haven't we? Let's get that up on the screen. So you can see that there, one body, many parts, going to put on, put off, and then back to one body, many parts. 
That first piece there at the start of chapter 4, he introduced that metaphor, didn't he, of um, Christ being the head and us being the parts of the body and how each one of us has got different gifts. And uh, we have the responsibility of using them for the benefit of the people around them, around us. Then in the next part of chapter 4, he kind of switches gears and he introduces that new picture. The, the Christian life, he tells us, is like putting off an old set of clothes and putting on a new set. Paul told us to put off the old and put on the new, to put off darkness and put on light. And using that image, he was able to get right down into the nitty-gritty of Christianity 101, wasn't he? All the practical basics of living a transformed life are right there in that middle part of the book. Then in chapter 5, he switches back to the metaphor of the body and the parts again. Throughout that whole section on marriage and family and work, that's the image that he's got in mind. But now in our section, we see that he reverts one more time. And we're back with this picture of putting off and putting on. This time, it's armour we're putting on. So let's just get that up there. So you see that backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. That's the way that Paul's thinking works here. But why does he do that? Why does he put that little detail there in the structure of the book? Well, I think what Paul wants us to do as we approach this well-known section on the armour of God is he wants us to see it in the light of what he said before. It's all interconnected. Paul isn't telling us to put on a different set of clothes now from the ones that he told us to put on earlier. No, the armour of God that Paul describes here is what he was talking about earlier. Putting on the armour of God is just another way of describing putting on all the good things that we learn with Matt and Rod, the basics, the everyday essentials of Christian living. So the armour of God is not just a set of kind of uh, elite level spiritual equipment that we need to put and kind of prey onto ourselves in moments of extreme crisis, although it's certainly not less than that. In verse 13 of our text, Paul tells us to put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground. But he already told us a bit about the day of evil, didn't he, back in chapter 5, verse 16? It's not just some abstract moment of crisis out there in the future. No, the day of evil, in Paul's mind, is right now. The day of evil is the time in which we're living. And the way we're supposed to be living in it at every moment is living equipped with the armour of God. Perhaps there's even a hint of that back in chapter 4. When you look at that first list of things that we're supposed to put off and put on, um, it's interesting to compare the old garments, the things Paul wants us to kind of put back in the closet, with the new garments that Paul wants us now to get out and put on here in our text. In chapter 4, do you remember, Paul started by telling us to put off falsehood. In our passage, he starts by telling us to wear the belt of truth. So they're opposites, aren't they? Falsehood and truth. In chapter 4, he told us he wanted us to put off sin in our anger. And in our passage, he tells us he wants us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness and sin, they're kind of opposites, aren't they? In chapter 4, he wanted us to put off stealing and do something useful with our hands. In our passage, he wants us to get our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, to be ready for action. In chapter 4, he wanted us to put off unwholesome talk and put on encouragement. In our passage now, he wants us to take up these uh, weapons, the shield and the helmet, to protect us from the accusations of the evil one. In chapter 4, he wanted us to put off grieving the spirit. Now, in our passage, he wants us to take up the sword of the spirit. So do you see the two things are connected? Putting off what we're told to put off clears the way for us to put on what we're supposed to put on, the armour of God. So the armour of God is the equipment that we need for everyday life. Putting off falsehood and sin in our anger, working hard and encouraging others and seeking to please the Spirit of God are things that we need to do every day, aren't they? That's why Paul puts this section right in here after all that super challenging content about marriage and family and work life. It couldn't get more nitty-gritty than that. The armour of God is what it takes to make us different in those uh, very practical areas of life. The armour of God is the alternative to what we were. If we don't have it on, we haven't changed at all. There are only two different outfits 
for us to wear, according to Paul. The third major thread that Paul wants us to pick up here that comes out of the earlier parts of the book is in verse 11. Paul tells us to put on the full armour of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. The important word there is stand. We have it three times in our section in verse 11, 13 and 14. This is what it looks like to be filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The person who is filled with the power of God takes their stand. And that idea goes back through the book, just like some of the earlier things about God's power and this whole putting on and putting off thing. Each one of the major sections of Ephesians, those three big blocks there, has a posture associated with it. At the end of the book, we find that depending on the power of God is all about standing. But at the start of the book, we find all of that vertical truth, the, con- the, the, the calling that we've uh, had placed on our lives is all about sitting. And in the middle of the book, we find that all the horizontal content, the way that we're supposed to be living, is all about walking. So let's get that up on the diagram here just for fun. Uh, the calling is really about sitting. The, uh, the walk is, well... Uh, the life is really about walking and the, uh, the power is really about standing. Okay. If you go back to chapter 2, um, after Paul has explained all the wonderful things that God has done for us, he tells us that we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's our situation today if we're Christians. I wonder if we know that. It's a great image, isn't it? It's a picture of rest and completion We sit down after something is finished, don't we? And that's the whole note that Paul wants to strike in the book of Ephesians. The life-changing work, the life-saving work that we all need so badly is done. We already have the blessings that are described in chapter 1. We're not desperately striving to be children because we are children. We're not desperately striving to be forgiven because we are forgiven. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it, to know that. Then when Paul moves on to start talking about living a life worthy of that great calling, he shifts his posture as well and starts talking about walking. Rod uh, walked us through these things last week. Five times Paul uses that verb, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walk as children of light. Consider then carefully how you walk. And once again, that's a really great image, isn't it? Paul wants me to see that Christianity is not just about a decision I came to in the increasingly remote past that marks me as being in, so long as I keep going to church and keep saying the right things. Um, uh, and just trusting that after that it is well, it is well with my soul. No, in Paul's mind, walking is the evidence that I am not what I was. I know this stretches the analogy a little bit, but Paul wants to see that if we're not walking, we're not sitting. If we're not living a life worthy of the calling, we're not called. Sitting and walking then are perfect images for these first two big parts of Ephesians. But why why does Paul choose this final image, standing, uh, at the end of the book, in this section that's all about depending on the power of God? Well, the image that I think Paul wants to put in our minds here is kind of military. Uh, It goes with the metaphor of armour that he's about to flesh out here. Taking our stand conjures up the picture of a soldier who's chosen the position on which he's going to fight and who is determined either to win or to die on that spot and not to desert it. That's what Paul says it looks like to be equipped with the power of God. Christianity is not a matter of looking out on the uncertainties of the future and saying, oh, I hope, I hope I can hold on. I hope I can resist temptation. I hope my faith won't get choked and shriveled by the cares of the world. No. Christianity is a matter of saying, with God's power working in me, I will hold on. I will resist temptation. I will overcome the cares of the world or die trying. That's how Paul wants us to look about what we've learned about marriage and work and family over the last few weeks. 
He wants us to take a stand on it. He wants us to fight for it. He wants us to defend it. And he's not blind to how hard that's going to be to do. In fact, in Paul's mind, it's a little bit harder than we think. See, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm tempted to look at all the challenges that the book of Ephesians lays out from a kind of human perspective. Um, I look at what's being asked of me as a husband and as a parent, uh, as a co-worker, and I just think, man, this is a tall order. I agree with all of it in principle, but I know that when I'm tired and when I get just a bit kind of defensive, it's going to be really difficult for me to actually consistently do this stuff. I'm going to find myself getting selfish and discouraged and angry. That's, I know what's true of myself. And that's true. That's why we need the power that Paul's talking about here, isn't it? That's why we need to pray like Paul is about to urge us to pray. That's why this whole section is in the text. We cannot do this alone. But Paul goes even further than that. Paul tells us that if all we see is the human limitations, we haven't seen half of the problem. In verse 12, he tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is telling us that there's a whole extra dimension to the challenges of being a Christian. There's a spiritual world out there. Just as the garments that we're now called to put on are spiritual, the garments that we're called to put off are also spiritual. Just as the power that holds us now is spiritual, the power that held us before we knew Christ was also spiritual, and now it's taking its stand against us. Do you remember that story of Elisha and his servant Gehazi back in 2 Kings chapter 6? when they were surrounded by the Aramean army, and it looked certain like they were both going to be killed. And uh, God spoke to Gehazi through his master, and he said, don't be afraid, Gehazi. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And Gehazi looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Gives me goosebumps just to read that, because it's true wonder if we ever reflect on it, that we're surrounded and supported by the angels of God, even in the daily battles of life. But Ephesians teaches us that that passage cuts both ways. Yes, there really are more with us than there are with them. But the hills are not only filled with horses and chariots of fire. There are horses and chariots of darkness out there too. There's enmity out there. There's destructiveness out there. There's vindictiveness and cruelty out there. There are powers that have allied themselves with humanity in resisting and rejecting God, that have sold their souls to it, that will fight to the death for it. And that's what's going on behind the scenes of my struggles to be a good husband and a good parent and a good employee. It's not less than a struggle for me. And what I decide is crucial in it. But it's more than just a struggle for me. It's an engagement in a broader battle. It's an engagement in a cosmic war. That's what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he wrote that great book, The Screwtape Letters. For any of you who've not read it, I highly recommend it. He wants us to see that every action in our lives is either a victory or a defeat in a battle that defines the very purpose of our existence. And in this text, it's as if we get a glimpse into the war room of that uh, greater conflict where the battlefronts are all laid out and the commanders on both sides are, are watching every advance and every reverse, looking to see which way the scales are going to tip. That's what we're involved in here as believers. Right now, the spiritual forces of evil are looking into this gym, thinking, hey, look, they're together right now. This is an important moment. Is that guy up there going to make them, make them aware of us? Or is he going to blow it? Is that guy there in the second row going to hear something today that will free him from all the self-confidence we've worked so hard to weave around him? Or will he be distracted? Is this gathering going to be the beginning of a great humiliation for God? Or a great victory for God? What happens here matters more than we can imagine. 
But there's encouragement in this text too. Because the description of the rulers and the authorities in our passage is another one of these threads that works its way back through the whole of the book of Ephesians. If you look back in chapter 1, Paul told us that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority. In chapter 2, Paul told us that our slavery to the ruler of the kingdom of the air is ended and broken. In chapter 3, he told us that the church now has responsibility to speak God's wisdom back to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And in chapter 4, he told us that Christ ascended higher than all the heavens and all the authorities that they contain. And what's the common theme of all of those references? The supremacy of Jesus. Yes, we do have fearsome opponents ranged against us, but Jesus is ruler over all of them. Yes, they did have the power to kill us, but Jesus' intervention destroyed that power. So although Paul raises the stakes in our passage, telling us that the battle is harder than we think, he also gives us assurance that the enemies we face are subject to the master that we serve. If we fight without him, we are hitting way out of our league and we will be destroyed. But if we are fighting with him, it's our enemies that are hitting out of their league and they will be destroyed. Without him, we're like the army of Israel standing in front of Goliath, terrified, faced with an opponent that none of us can tackle. But with Jesus, we're like that army after David stepped into the action and took that giant out. Now we rush into the battle in the power and the confidence of God. And that's the context now in which Paul introduces the armour. I want to try and show us here uh, how Paul puts this inventory of armour together. Paul is not pulling this out of nowhere. Uh, Paul is very deliberately drawing these pieces of armour out of the Old Testament. Look with me at the, uh, the first and the last items on that list of armour. Uh, the first one is the belt of truth. And the last one in the list is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, Now listen as I read a section for you from Isaiah chapter 11, first five verses. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. That passage is all about the coming of the Messiah. It's one of the most amazing messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. The stump of Jesse, the righteous branch uh, that's been referred to throughout the whole history of Israel is uh, on show here. And who is he? He's Jesus. We know that now. The second verse of that passage was quoted directly at Jesus' baptism and the rest of it describes his whole ministry. Truly, he didn't judge by what he saw with his eyes or decide by what he heard with his ears, but with righteousness, he judged the needy and with justice, he gave decisions for the poor of the earth. Isn't that what we see when we read the Gospels? But then look how it continues. Isaiah said, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked The word that we have translated, breath there, is just the same Hebrew word that's used to uh, um, mean the Spirit of God. Isaiah is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah here, whose words are going to strike the earth like a weapon. And that's what we've got in our text, isn't it? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And it goes on, righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Again, the Hebrew words there for righteousness and faithfulness cover that whole range of meanings, Uh, around justice and truth and correctness. Paul compresses it all down just into one simple phrase, the belt of truth. But the context still comes from Isaiah. The sword of the spirit and the belt of truth are fundamental characteristics of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the long-expected king. So when Paul says, put on the armour of God, he means it literally The armour he's inviting us to wear is the armour that Jesus wore when he came to this earth to do the stuff that he did. Jesus shows us what wearing it looks like. And that's such a help to us, isn't it? Because I think 
often Christians wrestle with this passage thinking, oh, why is the breastplate on my breast and not, why don't I need truth on my head or why don't I need, you know, all of these things. I think that completely misses the point of the passage. We're supposed here to see the character and the equipment of Jesus and to emulate him in the way that we walk in our Christian lives. It's a challenge, isn't it, for us? We look at this kind of stuff and think, okay, I really want to be, you know, equipped with the sword of the spirit and the belt of truth. Um, but it's only when we see Jesus actually practicing those, uh, those uh, using, wearing those pieces of equipment that we see what it really looks like in, in practice. So I've got to just ask ourselves, if I want to know whether I've got these things on, well, does my use of God's word and my commitment to the truth look like Jesus's use of God's word and his commitment to the truth? Am I really wearing the armor that he wore? And the answer to that question is not actually that difficult to get because it's right there in the pages of the Gospels. All we have to do is open them up to see how Jesus handles the Bible and um, we can emulate him. Look at the way Jesus opens up the text. We can see that, first of all, he submits himself to it as the very word of God. So also should we. We see that he regarded it as a coherent whole. He wasn't fragmenting the thing into multiple pieces. He saw it all speaking together. So also should we. Jesus believed that it had a coherent meaning, that you couldn't just go to it and make it say what you wanted to. He said, no, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the word of God. Again, so that should be our model. Jesus believed in its ongoing relevance. He took things that were 1,500 years old at the time that he quoted them and applied them directly to the circumstances of his own day. So should we. And Jesus believed that it contained everything that we need for life and godliness, didn't he? He points people back to the Bible to show them uh, the expectations for the Messiah, to show them their need and to show them the great solution to it. That's what it looks like to take up the sword of the Spirit and to put on the belt of truth. It means to live our lives in the way that Jesus lived, to handle the truth, to handle the word in the way that he handled them. Now look at the second pair of uh, items of armour. That's the second item on the list and the next to last item on the list. The breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. This time Paul is drawing his inspiration from Isaiah chapter 59. This is what Isaiah says. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And once again, this is a messianic passage. But this time we're looking at the very reason that the Messiah was sent. The passage pictures the situation of humanity after the fall, when God looked into the world for his ambassadors, for his officers, for humanity for the people charged with carrying his name and the news of his grace to the ends of the earth. And what did he see? He saw nothing. He saw no one. Humanity was AWOL. I'd like to say that we were MIA, but we weren't even A. We weren't even in action. We'd risen up against him. This passage in Isaiah is his response. The person described in this text enters the battle wearing the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. That isn't a picture of an ordinary soldier. No, if you want to capture this in your mind's eye, think Alexander the Great riding out to face Darius, or uh, picture Achilles striding out to confront Hector. The breastplate and the helmet described here are the equipment of a king, and they're emblazoned with his insignia. They're there to be noticed What's on those things is there to tell us what he stands for. And what does he stand for? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? He stands for righteousness and salvation. He stands for the vindication of the right and the salvation of those who do wrong. He stands for wiping out what God opposes and for rescuing what God opposes. How can those two things be true at the same time? Aren't they completely contradictory? Well, the answer is it all depends on who's wearing the armour. Righteousness and salvation can stand by side if the king who strides out onto the battlefield is Jesus Christ. Righteousness and salvation are the two halves of the gospel. That God's commitment to righteousness was so great 
that our unrighteousness had to be punished. And yet his urge to save was so great that he endured that punishment himself that we might go free. That's what the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation mean here in Ephesians. Wearing them means standing on and standing for the gospel. It means saying to the world, my hope is here, built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Wearing these items means living out our calling in our marriage and family and work as people who are marked by the gospel, who strive with all their might to show the world the preeminent importance of righteousness, and yet who know when they fail and when others fail, the preeminent virtue of salvation, that their acceptance was only ever and will only ever be by grace. And that brings us to the two final items, having feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel or the good news of peace. That comes from Isaiah 52. Remember that passage, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation. In that passage, the game has shifted radically from the previous text in Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, humanity was AWOL. But in Isaiah 52, we see what life looks like for those who have been brought back by God's amazing work of salvation. In Isaiah 59, God was looking for ambassadors, for people willing to ride out into enemy territory with the good news of the gospel, and he found none. But now in Isaiah 52, he finds them. And that's what it means to wear this piece of armour. To have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace is to be ready to reclaim the role that we were made for, to be willing to carry the good news to our street corner, to our children, to a neighbour, to a work colleague, to our own small but eternally significant square foot of this battlefield. And we're passionate about this as a church. We want to help each other know the gospel and be able to explain it. If there's any way that we can help you do that, we would love to help you. Because that's what it means to wear this piece of armour. And the shield of faith offers us comfort when we do that. What does it mean to take up the shield of faith that can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one? Well, again, Paul's source in the Old Testament tells us, this is a quote from Psalm 91, which says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. That whole passage in the psalm describes a battle in which the soldiers are protected by God's oversight and power. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, says the psalmist, but it will not come near you. The shield of faith is the assurance of God's faithfulness, whether we feel it or not. It's a willingness to act on the basis that God will come through for us because we're dear to him. That's what that psalm tells us. He will not leave us or forsake us. And it's Paul's knowledge of that fact that drives him to prayer in the final verses of the, of the section. He summons us to desperate dependence on God's power to, um, uh, to equip us. His hope is fixed entirely on that, uh, on God arming us to fight as he himself fought. And so he urges us to approach God. And it's really striking when you read this in the, uh, the Greek. He says, pray at all prayers at all times in all perseverance for all of God's people. It's got that kind of just uh, sense of clinging on tightly to prayer, knowing that that's the place where all our hope is really uh, found. And that's clinging on, as he says, all prayers and all people and all kinds of perseverance is really a mandate for creativity on our part, I think. Because how many types of prayer do you know? Thank you prayers, praise prayers, help prayers, intercessory prayers, corporate prayers, devotional prayers, prayer walks, prayer journals. Paul wants us to bring every piece of that into the game as we seek God's power to live the Christian life. How many times of day do you think about using for prayer? On your knees, in your closet in the morning, around the breakfast table with your family, at a stoplight, under the shower, at your desk, in a restaurant, on your date night, in the middle of the night, feeding the baby, 
Paul wants us to bring every piece of it into the game as we seek God's power to live the Christian life. How many different kinds of perseverance do you know or have you experienced? Perseverance with a game plan and all of your goals worked out on an Excel spreadsheet? Perseverance that just won't let go when all the reasons to give up seem better than the reasons for carrying on? Perseverance when you have no idea how you're going to survive beyond the next five minutes outside the grace of God. Paul wants us to bring every piece of that into the game as we seek God's power to live the Christian life. And how many other people do we know that we could pray for? It's a lot, isn't it? How many places do we know where the sound of the gospel has not yet been heard? Paul wants us to bring every one of those into the game as we seek God's power to live the Christian life because this is corporate, isn't it? That's the message of Ephesians. This is not some episode of the Lone Ranger. We are one body, many parts. We need to help each other wear the armour. We need to pray it onto each other. That's what Paul has for us in this great letter. We're seated with God now because of the calling that he's placed on our lives. How can we be sure it's real in us? We can be sure it's real if we're walking in a manner that's worthy of that calling. And how do we walk that walk? We walk it in the power of God which we get when we pray. And that's the power that enables us to stand So as we end our series here, let's step back now with all the tools that we've got in our hands and attempt uh, some kind of review and see if we can't get the bird's eye picture of the book. But not just the book. I think Paul wants us to see the Christian worldview. He wants us to be able to go back not just to kind of 30,000 feet and look at our little uh, kind of uh, patch of Grand Rapids, but to 30,000 light years and to be able to see the whole universe and what it is that God's intends for it. I wonder whether we know what we truly are? Do we know that we hold a truly unique place in this creation? God made us to be his ambassadors, representing his truth and goodness to everything that we touch. And we are equipped uniquely for that role. Look around us. Just compare yourself sometime to the rest of God's creation. The animals are amazing. They're intricately made. They have the most amazing capabilities. But we're effortlessly superior to them, aren't we? We transcend the animal world. Our minds and bodies can do things that no other animal could ever dream of. Intelligence, self-reflection, art, architecture, music, romance, science, exploration, spaceflight, sympathy, gratitude, faithfulness, self-sacrifice and love. We're extraordinary, and there's a reason for that. We were made to bear an extraordinary responsibility. These gifts, these privileges that we possess so uniquely are the image of God in us. God made us to know him and to be intimate with him, to be on the inside, to participate in the dance, to be inside the tent, to know his mind and will, to be the officers in his army. He made us to carry his name and his rule and his character to the ends of the earth. But we refused. Can you even begin to comprehend the ingratitude and the shame of it, the arrogance and the ignominy of what each of us has done? We took the incredible gifts that we've been given and we used them to elevate ourselves as gods in God's place. To say, I don't want to be your ambassador. I'm going to be your enemy. Fallen humanity is the disgrace of all creation. If there are other unfallen worlds out there, I guarantee that the very thought of us makes them want to vomit because we bit the hand that fed us in the most sickening way. We're not just like a kind of underprivileged child from a broken home with no prospects who rebels against their teachers at school because they've never seen anything better. No, we're like the very best student, the most gifted, the one in whom everything has been invested, the one who's taken the cream of what education has to give, the out-of-school hours of every teacher, the careful attention of every coach. We're the child who's enjoying the love and tenderness and gentleness of the best possible parents and who has then willingly, knowingly, deliberately become a monster. That's what we are. 
And that's what the principalities and powers see with perfect perspective. We, of course, are blind to it, but outside our world, Ephesians tells us there's an audience. There's a stadium, and this is the pitch, and we are the players. And there are unseen spectators and unheard voices calling out all around us. Some are wearing God's colors, but others are goading us on in our rebellion. And for the longest time, their team seemed to be winning. The world that was supposed to be this jewel in the crown of all that God made, this centerpiece, this home base for the worship leaders of creation became a wreck. Amazing though we are, we are not God. And the result of our attempt to be God has just been the most abominable carnage, hasn't it? Using all our intelligence and art and energy, we've engineered a monstrous edifice to greed and selfishness. We're not a blessing to the world. We're more like a disease, I think, if you look at it. We're called to steward creation. Instead, we mindlessly plunder it. The cruelty we inflict on each other is even worse. We don't represent God at all, do we, in our natural human state? Our attempt to reach up to heaven to be gods has driven us down to be more like animals. And all that remains of love and kindness and truly constructive creativity in our world is just the burned-out shell of what God originally intended for us to be. So can you see why the Bible tells us that we're going to be condemned? Why Ephesians tells us that by nature we're deserving of wrath? Of course we are. But the game has changed for the spiritual forces of evil. There was always a hint that it would. Nobody ever really quite believed that God was just going to lay down and die. The world has never been quite as bad as it really should have been if human evil had just run its course. Something, someone, was always holding on to it, restraining it. And 2,000 years ago, that someone stepped onto the pitch itself. The crowd drew in a great breath. And Ephesians tells us that God made the most extraordinary move. What would you have done in his place? Clean house and start again? That would have been my approach. But God, in his wisdom, allowed all of this, the whole great drama of, of creation and the fall, to so, show the universe something even greater than it would have seen if none of this had happened. God himself entered the story. God himself stepped into the game and played a hand that would totally undo our rebellion against him. God sent his son to gather up the consequences of our arrogance and stupidity and to bear them as if he had done these things himself. Because of his great love for us, says Ephesians 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And this game-changing play offered human beings a way back, a way out, a way to be again what we were always designed to be, a way to put off the old and put on the new. A way to stand, not as gods, but as parts of the body in which God himself, Jesus Christ, is the true head. A way to end the chaos and step out onto the pitch again as soldiers in the army of the King of Kings. And that is what we are as Christians. Do you know that? Do you see what Ephesians is really all about? All the vertical content, all the amazing truths of what God has done for us, these truths tell the story of our recovery, of the redemption of humanity, of the renovation of everything that God originally intended for us to be. They tell us that God has changed the game and that he's rebuilding his team, that he's masterminding a radical switch in allegiance in life after life, a radical eruption of newness and purity, a radical annihilation of rebellion and brokenness. God is taking the most his most determined opponents and opening their eyes to the cosmic scale of their ingratitude and then re-equipping them in the uniform that Jesus himself gave up for them to wear. All the horizontal, our lives, the tiny details of my marriage and my parenting and my work, that's the game. And everything in all creation, the powers and the authorities, the evil and the good, all of it is watching, wondering, if God is really going to do it, 
whether what is happening here that looked for so long like it would be the ultimate humiliation for God is actually going to be the ultimate comeback victory of all eternity. So it matters. It matters profoundly what we do. I don't know about you, but with all my heart, I want to send a message back to whatever is out there to hear it, to say this turnaround is for real. And it will not be stopped until Jesus takes his place on the podium. And goodness and love and truth are exalted over selfishness and greed and destruction as the values that really cut it in God's creation. That's why we need to pray like crazy for the power of God. We need the armour of God just for the basics of life. Because if we live the basics of life as ambassadors of God, as remade, blood-bought followers of Jesus, we tell the whole creation that God is the winner in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift our hearts to you just so aware of our, our, how unworthy we are to even come into your presence. God, the book of Ephesians sketches out this incredible truth, this incredible backstory, which we are so blind to, and that our world has coached us not to see. Lord, that we are made for the most exalted role. And Lord, that our resistance and rejection of that that our determination to be God and not to serve God is the most repellent. It's the most repellent sin that could ever be committed. And yet, God, you have reached towards us in mercy. It's so amazing. And it's such a testimony to you. And God, we pray that the universe might see it, that they might know that this is the God that made them. Lord God, that, he is a, that you are full of mercy and kindness that you are God who remakes, who rebuilds, who saves, who speaks forgiveness to the unforgivable. God, might that be true of our lives and might our lives speak it back with all our might, with all our hearts. In Jesus' name.